the Lord has blessed us through uh, the timing of things where we can begin uh, the gospel of Luke uh, prior to Advent season and Lord willing and uh, uh, if we don't have any kind of sickness or anything like that, we'll be able to uh, come to uh, those precious chapters of the Advent during our Advent season here. And we are looking at Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 56 today. And uh, it's one of those passages that is dear to us. Uh, we rem are reminded that Elizabeth is now pregnant with John the Baptist, and Zechariah had that great vision in the temple where he was told of the coming of John the Baptist. He did not believe it and was struck mute as a result of that. And then, uh, then Mary herself receives the word from Gabriel uh, that she would be the mother of Messiah. Uh, and, uh, and then he, she is given a sign uh, that Elizabeth uh, is also pregnant. Her uh, basically sterile older cousin uh, is with child, and that was a sign meant to encourage, of course, Mary uh, in, uh, in the difficult trial of being pregnant in that age some 2,000 years ago in that culture uh, and the, uh, the, the scandal that would be involved around this crisis pregnancy, as we would put it. Uh, and what we're going to see today is the coming together of both uh, of Elizabeth and Mary uh, and the outpouring of praise that comes as a result of that. But one of the things, too, we always want to be aware of is the, the theological import of what it is that we're learning in Scripture. And what we see with the coming together of Elizabeth and Mary is also the coming together of the Old and the New Covenants in one time as John the Baptist and Jesus Christ come together in the wombs of their mothers. Let me read to you uh, that new covenant. And one of the new, uh, the new covenant comes to us from Jeremiah. It also uh, comes to us in Ezekiel. And we are, of course, living under that new covenant now. And if you are, are a student of the Old Testament scriptures, which you should be, you should read the Old Testament scriptures, uh, very often we feel this burden, don't we? When we read the Old Testament. It just seems so heavy, so difficult. Uh, and it makes us so much appreciate the coming of the new covenant that we are under, that we can look to the past at the coming of Messiah instead of hoping uh, in the future of the coming of Messiah. But Jeremiah chapter 31 states this, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, Although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and teach man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Let us go to the Lord and pray that he would bless us through the understanding of the coming together of the Old and the New Testament covenants through the visitation of Elizabeth and Mary. Father, we do turn to you and we pray, God, that you would be with us now. Help us to understand the great import of, of, of what's going on theologically. But Lord, let us join with Elizabeth and with Mary in just exultant praise. Let us be so in love with you and so convinced of Holy Scripture and so longing to see you face to face that we just can't help singing about it. We just can't help expressing this love for you to others. 
and magnifying your name, as did these precious ladies. Bless us now. Put us in their sandals. Take us back in time 2,000 years ago in that little, probably, mud hut in the hillside of Judea. And let us just realize how beautiful and wonderful it is that this meeting of the Old and the New Covenants comes together in this text. Bless us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we look at this, we're going to see here, uh, first of all, the Elizabeth's Old Testament fulfillment in verses 39 through 45, and Mary's New Covenant fulfillment in verses 46 through 56 of Luke chapter 1. You might find your home group helps insert of assistance to you as we go through these texts. Uh, first of all, we see Elizabeth's Old Covenant fulfillment in verses 39 through 45. God says, Luke writes, Now at this time Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zecharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold... When the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what has been spoken to her by the Lord. Whew. This is a powerful meeting, isn't it? What a wonderful thing. Thousands of years of hope are now being fulfilled in this meeting of peasant women here. I love what it says here. Of course, Mary has received the word that she is now going to be pregnant. She is now pre pregnant. The Holy Spirit has come upon her in a miraculous way, has fathered this child with her womb. Uh, and so the, the baby Jesus is a week old in her womb. It would have taken three or four days for her to get to the hill country of Judea. You, you know, it's the reason why in the Psalms they say come up to Jerusalem because it's in the hill country. So even if you're going from north to south, you're going up hills. And it's, a very, it's kind of an arid land with lots of little hills and little small mountains and that kind of thing. So they live somewhere in a village in the hill country near Jerusalem. We don't exactly uh, know where. But this particular meeting, the theologians call the visitation. The visitation together between Elizabeth and Mary. But of course, also between John the Baptist and Jesus for the first time, even though they were in their wombs. So suddenly Mary just kind of stands at the door and Elizabeth recognized immediately who she was. Would not have had noticed that she was coming because she came, left in a hurry. There's an example on that, too. When God tells you to obey, you don't, you're not slow about it. Delayed obedience is planned disobedience. You want to be in a hurry to obey the Lord. So she hurries on here. She's standing at the door, and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit fills Elizabeth, fills John the Baptist, and the baby leaps in her womb as they are filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a remarkable thing. It's actually fulfillment of what the angel Gabriel told Zechariah in prophecy in uh, chapter uh, 1, verse 15. For he will be great from the Lord and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So John the Baptist was saved prior to even being born. What a wonderful example that is of God saving graces. John the Baptist was the prophesied forerunner. He was the first person to recognize Jesus Christ and yet still in his, in his mother's womb. Think about that. He knew Jesus was there. Jesus, how? Well, he's not even that big. <laughs> I mean, he's a, he, at this time is what some people might say. He's just a multi-celled organism. But he's a little baby 
in the womb of Mary. John the Baptist knows that because God has entered that house and the Holy Spirit is testifying to that truth. Later on, John would state, you yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who is the bride is the, who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. He recognized Jesus, even though he had not been born, nor had Jesus. He's already preaching. He's already started his preaching ministry before he even had voice. And then Elizabeth cries out, says, cries out with a loud voice. In a sense, what she's really doing is she is singing with a loud voice. She is singing praises to God here. This is going to be the first of, our, of five songs of the nativity that we're going to study here in the next few weeks. You, first of all, you have Elizabeth's song that we have here. Then you have Mary's song called the Magnificat. It comes from the first lines, my soul magnifies. Then we have Ze Zechariah's song called the Benedictus, blessed be the name of the Lord. Of course, they have the angel's song, which we sing about, right? The glory in excelsis Deo. And then Simeon's song, the nuke diminis, now you can, I can depart, in which we will see, Lord willing, the Sunday after Christmas on uh, New Year's Eve. Graham Scrooge rightly identified these, Christ these Christmas carols as the last of the Hebrew psalms and the first of the Christian hymns. Here we have the first two Christian hymns ever sung. He, she asked the question, how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? Not, hello, Mary. Uh, how are you doing? How's your mama? How's your daddy? <laughs> you know, how are the goats? And none of that. You know, it's how is it the mother of my She knew immediately because the Holy Spirit told her, your cousin is pregnant with Messiah. Think of the drama of this situation. Now, Mary was a good bit. I mean, Elizabeth was a good bit older than Mary. And, you know, in, a, in the ancient uh, in, in Asian cultures to this day, uh, age is reverenced. But who is the one that is recognizing the authority here? It's Elizabeth's recognizing the authority of Mary, the mother of my Lord here. It's beautiful how she even says, my Lord. Uh, of course, Lord is a reference to deity. It's used two, different uh, two dozen times in the first two chapters of Luke. It's similar to how David used the term in Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for my feet. So Elizabeth recognizes the same truth. The baby is not just human. The baby is indeed Lord only revelation from the Holy Spirit could have told Elizabeth this, could have caused John to leap in joy while he was not even yet born here uh, and recognizing this wonderful, wonderful truth. And, and I need to point out, this is something of a side note in regards to social issues, but I want you to realize how is Scripture defining this unborn John the Baptist, this unborn baby Jesus as being fully human? Even to the point where John the Baptist even has emotions in the, in, in, the, uh, in the womb. It's interesting, if you track the history of abortion and abortion rights, one of the things you'll find, that, and I found as I was doing some research for this text, was that as many differences as liberals and conservative Christians have, many differences as liberal and conservative uh, churches have. I've told my students at AU even just this week that really when it comes down to it, if a church has so rejected the word of God and has so rejected the supernatural, they're not really even a church. They're not really even Christian. They're basically sec religious secular humanists as opposed to conservatives who revere uh, God, who revere the supernatural, who revere scripture. 
But nevertheless, even with the most liberal and the most conservatives, they, they were united on one point. Abortion is killing. It is wrong to have an abortion, to perform an abortion, to promote abortion until feminism. And when feminism came, the idea that the mother has rights over the baby's body uh, became the prominent thought during our humanistic day and is now uh, the taught in most of the liberal churches of this day as a necessity. But as you've often heard, one person's right ends where another begins. So this is a text that you can use uh, when you're having that awkward conversation with your feminist aunt at Christmas, <laughs> or maybe not have that conversation. But this is a text. Notice these babies are fully human. They are, in a sense, rational beings already in the womb. It's also an opportunity for us to remember that uh, abortion has affected quite a number of people, including a number of Christians. So the point is not to go beat people up and condemn them all the time because of uh, perhaps a past sin, but to recognize that that's a sin that needs to stop. And our culture needs to put an end to this killing. We now see here that uh, Mary's new covenant fulfillment in verses 46 through uh, 56. Uh, the, uh, you know, it's interesting uh, when, when Gabriel appeared to Mary, Mary didn't ask for a sign. Mary didn't ask you for you to prove me, give me something. You know, not like Gideon. Can I throw some fleeces out and you tell me whether I'm really going to have Messiah's baby? There's none of that. She just believed. She just believed. And yet God is gracious. He understands the limits of our faith. And man, is our faith limited sometimes. So he gives her a sign. He's going to, and it's a connected sign. You have two women incapable of having babies, both of them pregnant. So he's going to send her to Elizabeth, does send her to her. Elizabeth responds here. And now this is Mary's response. Listen to, listen to the words of this, uh, of this uh, hymn of praise. And Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior. For he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. And he has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has exalted those who are humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to the home. Again, this particular hymn is called the Magnificat from the first words in the Latin of my soul magnifies the Lord. Now, when you read this, don't be confused. It's not like saying my soul wants to make God bigger than he really is. That's, the, that's not what she means by magnified. God is just, he's a little limited here. We've got to give him a little bit more big in order to be able to. That's not what he's saying here. I love how Sproul defines this. What she's really saying is, my soul has been saturated by a sense of the divine and by his presence and by his mercy. And so from the deepest part of my being, I want to exalt him. That's what it means to magnify, to lift up God in exaltation. Whew. That's the way to live, Christian. Does your soul magnify God? Are you just sometimes so overwhelmed by just his purity, his goodness, and his patience with you that you just can't help break out in song? That's where we want to be. 
Mary is a model of the, of the, of the victorious Christian life in so many ways. Magnifying automatically leads to rejoicing. It goes back to our Westminster Confession of Faith. Question one of the Shorter Catechism. What is man's chief end? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. When you're in glorifying God, you are enjoying God. And when you're enjoying God, the things of this world just don't seem to matter. We have a consuming interest in the divine. Our thoughts go towards heaven instead of the next bill payment that we have to make. I love what John Piper said. Uh, Y'all know that my favorite Presbyterians are Baptist. Uh, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. At the core of every one of your sins, even sins you confess this morning, is a lack of satisfaction in God. It, so many of our temptations, if you could just, if you could hear, instead of listening to your, your flesh and the world and the devil and listen to the God, God would tell you, Holy Spirit would tell you, that's a shortcut. That's a shortcut. You're willing to compromise in the immediate uh, from the great blessing that I plan to give you if you would just wait, if you would show self-control, if you would get your eyes off of yourself, if you would learn to learn, love others. It's being satisfied in him, no matter what, that really brings out joy. Now, again, look at the difficult situation Mary is in. She can hide the baby. How many months can you hide a baby? Four, five? It, 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 they eventually get really big. You know, they get larger and larger. So she's going to have to go home. She stays three months. She's going to have to go home and she's going to be and they're going to assume the worst which they, 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 they should assume the worst in a sense. But, but she, she, she's still magnifying God. She doesn't, she's not anxious about the future. You know what? The God who made me pregnant can figure out how I'm going to birth this baby, even if people hate me. I think that's probably what she was thinking, even if they think I'm a liar. You know what's brilliant, too? What a blessing to Mary. Elizabeth's the only one who believes Mary's story. Joseph didn't believe Mary's story. Joseph was ready to put her away. Elizabeth, because of the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth goes, huh, you're pregnant. She wasn't even showing. She probably didn't even have morning sickness yet. She wasn't craving pineapple with mayonnaise yet. I mean, she was just, she was moving on. So the question is, are we satisfied with God? And as a result, do we magnify God? Do we think great thoughts of God? Are we quick to kind of turn on him when things don't turn out the way we want to? I love what, uh, I love what Kent Hughes uh, says here in reference to the fact that we actually need each other's help to do this. This is part of the principle of Sunday morning worship. And, 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 and for those of you who are watching online... We have had an online ministry for many years. Praise God for that. It got us through COVID. We, had, uh, we have sermons online. We have live simulcast and everything. But that is no way, to, unless you have to stay at home, that is no way to worship on Sundays. You need to be with the people of God. You can get truth. You can do some worship. But you need to be with the people of God. Because when we're together, we magnify him more than we could separately. Hugh says this, there is th this is the reason we come together on Sunday worship. This is also what God desires in our corporate worship. Congregational worship makes possible an intensity of magnification that does not occur as readily as in individual worship. 
And just thinking about the headlines and what happened in Dublin this last week, let me keep reading. On the tragic level, a mob tends to descend to a much deeper level of cruelty than individuals would by themselves. The appreciation and enjoyment of an informed group of music lovers at a symphony is more intense than that in a single listener at home. In a similar way, corporate worship provides a context where holy passion is joyously elevated and God's word comes to the hearts with unique power. Martin Luther spoke of this when he confided, At home and in my own house, there is no warmth or vigor in me, but in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart, and it breaks its way through. We just want to share this. So we need to be at church. You need to be in Bible studies. You need to be in Christian fellowship all the time. It's just in us to want to share beautiful, wonderful things. You know, I love this time of year. I'll be sitting out on my, many of y'all have been to my house. I'll be sitting out on my veranda, which overlooks my backyard. And I just love this time of year, sitting there with a cup, the, a cup of coffee and watching the feral cats change color. Uh, and, and often I'll just be overwhelmed. The sun is rising and it just hits all those leaves and everything. And I'll just say, I'll, I'll text, sometimes I'll even text Nancy, just come, you need to come out. You need to come out and look at the maple leaf, you know. It's not enough for me just to say, that is some kind of maple. That is just an amazing bunch of oak trees right there. I just, you just got to share it. But, but, but church is inconvenient and people are selfish and we don't want to be here. It's just easier to log in, right? But you've got to be here. If you're going to magnify God, if you're going to be a part of what Mary is part of, you've got to be in church. You've got to find a good Bible-believing church and you need to be heavily involved with it. Notice this too. You remember going back to some of the bad doctrine that uh, centers around the Virgin Mary that we looked at last week. Notice uh, the very personal point that, Ma uh, that Mary says here. She breaks out with praise, my Savior. While it has been said that Mary was sinless, Mary doesn't believe, ever believe that she was sinless. She knew she needed a Savior. She was not good enough to get into heaven because no one Listen, if Mary couldn't get into heaven by her goodness, if she needed a Savior, you sure as heck need a Savior. I shouldn't have said sure as heck. You, you really need a Savior. Then I go on to sin. Uh, you need a Savior. Mary says, my Savior. She recognizes she needs a Savior. So you get, and it's very similar to Hannah's prayer, which we'll look at in just a moment. But you see this, this truth is both very personal. He has done great things for me, but also generational uh, and community from generation to generation. And I love how she says, generations will count me blessed. Amen to that. As difficult as Mary's situation must have been, can you imagine being mother to Messiah? Can you imagine prophecies that go all the way back to Genesis chapter, no, Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to say Genesis chapter 12, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, that Satan will bruise his heel, but he will crush Satan's head. All the way back there to the Proto-Uangelion, the first gospel. And, it's, and, and all of a sudden, all those promises walk into that room. And Elizabeth knows it, and John the Baptist knows it. This is a Cinderella story, isn't it? You know how old Mary was? Probably 13. Young women that time used to get uh, engaged at 12 or 13, would get married. It takes a year-long engagement, in which time the husband builds a house and is ready to prove that he can take care of her. He is going to normally be a little bit older. So she probably got married at 14, 13 years old. Peasant girl, 
probably, because she's female, she probably really wasn't worth educating, but they, they certainly did understand a lot of the scriptures. She may not have been able to actually even read. She may have just memorized the scriptures. And, and her hymn is one of the most theologically rich truths in all of Holy Scripture. There's 11 different qualities that, that you see about God in here. Let me just go through those very quickly, and you might find more. Mighty one, uh, the mighty one who's done great, for me, great things for me. He's the creator of the universe, but he's also the father of the child in her room. Let me tell you, uh, life is full of disappointments, and, they're mo- and, and those disappointments become even worse when you grow embittered towards God because he's not giving you what you want. If all he ever did was create the universe and sent you Jesus Christ as your savior, that's all you need. Everything else is, is garnish. Everything else is icing. Mercy to those who fear him. Uh, there's a, there, there, there's, a, there's a, a majesty that you need to have and understand God in order to receive his mercy. But how else are you going to approach a holy God except because of his mercy? Uh, he's done mighty things in general. What God does, he sus- creates, he sustains. And he scattered the proud. This is a common theme through these old songs. Uh, the proud like Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar and Herod. One example of that is in Acts chapter 12 where Herod uh, uh, dies. And we see from Dr. Luke's uh, the, 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 uh, the sequel to this wonderful text. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat in the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. And the people kept crying out, the voice of God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. I don't know what that looks like being eaten by worms and died, but I bet it hurt. This, of course, was a text that we would read to the children to get them to behave. Uh, he scatters the proud. I mean, just there's so many examples in Scripture. He brought down rulers. Sproul says this, At Christmas we celebrate the one who comes, whose government is on his shoulders, to whom the Father gives the authority to reign without go, uh, with the government that will have no end. We fuss and fret and stew and worry every day about the problems we face from earthly governments of this world. Even in our own nation, sometimes we forget who is actually running things. It is the Lord God omnipotent who reigns. Folks, we have in Washington very, very anti-Christian government. The president is anti-Christian. Many in Congress are anti-Christian. Many in courts are anti-Christian. They are opposed to the things of God. And yet, God allows them to be there. God allowed them to be uh, elected. God foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. So for us, to, for us to be anxious about that, which seems to be a curse to us, is to miss a lot of the blessing God has. What are you going to be in the face of an oppressive anti-Christian government? How are you going to act? That's really your responsibility. That's the responsibility of our church. He's exalted the humble. Of course, this is a wonderful theme, again, uh, throughout Holy Scripture here. Uh, And there's a blessings to be humble. We see this in the opening right of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the Gentile, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called the sons of God. 
Now, there is a disadvantage in a sense of being a Christian for a long time. Uh, this might be one of them. You're so used to hearing those Beatitudes, they don't really hit you. Remember when he spoke those? The primary entertainment of Rome was to watch people hack each other with swords. Rome got its wealth by stealing it from everybody else and killing anybody who opposed them. A third of the population were probably slaves, captured soldiers on the battlefield. Brutality, might makes right, was the word of the day. And Jesus comes up and says, blessed are the humble, blessed are the meek, blessed are the righteous. It's still true today. It's still true today. He exalts the humble. He filled the hungry. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit, as we saw from Psalm 34. He sent away the rich. Now, God is not anti-rich. He's anti-self-sufficiency. There is a temptation, and we see this throughout our culture, right, to be dependent upon your own means for, uh, for, for even salvation. You know, good people get into heaven. And because I have money, I don't have to have faith. So you've got to be very careful with it. And many of you do have money. You've got to be careful of that temptation. You've got to be careful of temptation. What God is opposed to is the self-satisfied. Those who think they've earned a place in heaven because they are rich. He's given help to Israel. He's, she's going back to the past here. She remembers his mercy. You know, isn't it amazing? God remembers his mercy. But he, and, and, and when he's doing that, he's also forgetting your sin. I think that's one of the most astonishing things to me in Scripture. God doesn't even remember my sin. You know how our sins will crop up. You're reminded of stupid things you did in the past. You'll be, you know, just, just, you know, you'll be mowing the lawn. All of a sudden, think about something stupid you did last month, last week. Where they, that's not what God does. Because if you're in Christ Jesus, God has chosen to forget, remember his mercy and forget your sin. He keeps his promises, specifically the promises to Abraham and the fathers, and those promises, of course, were that the blessing of the Gentiles would come through the line of Israel. That's a, this is a powerful baby, folks. This is a powerful baby. She's singing, in a sense, about her own son in the womb. You also see a lot of similarities uh, with Hannah's song. When, when Hannah was a, a, a difficult pregnancy, she was, she was infertile, and then she became, uh, through her prayers, became uh, pregnant with the, the prophet Samuel. Hannah breaks out in song, and Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in my God. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. And it goes on, very much similar to what Mary said. And Mary understood Hannah. She probably thought about Hannah uh, during this time as she was going up to the hill country. Uh, Riken says this, that with Mary, Mary knows her Bible. And the Magnificent either quotes from or alludes to verses from Genesis, Deuteronomy, First and Second Samuel, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. Mary tried to put virtually the whole Bible in her song. And yet she was probably an illiterate 13-year-old peasant girl. As I was reflecting about this, I thought about some of the young girls of our church and how precious they are. We're going to have a, a youth group question and answer period coming up here. And um, they, some of the youth have already sent in some of their questions. And some of these questions are, are pretty heavy. And Josiah Ricewig and I are going to kind of handle some of the questions. You know, one of them was, uh, how do you, how do you, uh, uh, how do you uh, blaspheme the Holy Spirit? You know, I can't wait to hear what Josiah, how he answers them. <laughs> But, I mean, that's a, that's a deep question, right? 
Folks, we have Marys in our midst. We have precious youth or at this level. This level of, of understanding, this level of desiring to please God, this level, level to make their life count for something. How blessed we are. But it's the power of music, too. She breaks out in this song. This would be a wonderful song for the youth to, 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 to memorize in so many ways. Plato understood, even Plato understood, this is pre-Christian, understood the power of music on the youth and if you think about the, the, the effect of Scripture on the youth, it's there. You know, just sort of a sideline uh, comment, too, is so many, and I have this conversation with people who visit our church because they're shocked to see all the young people we have at our church. And they're like, how much do you pay these guys? And, uh, and uh, one of the things that, that we've just realized is that a lot of churches think you've got to dumb down worship to attract youth. Well, that's just downright insulting to godly youth. Uh, one of the things we find with a lot of the people coming now, some people come for the pizza. I don't know. You know, some people come for the, the lunch afterwards, you know, but most of them come for the lunch that's during the service, the meal that's during the service. And what I found and what, one of the great sources of encouragement, both teaching at uh, Anderson University and at Erskine and, and here, is that that a lot of our young people, they don't want to be entertained. They don't want to be manipulated. They want meat. They don't want milk. They want the Bible. And that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do. We're just going to give them the Bible. So in a lot of ways, we don't, we don't do the things that we're supposed to do to attract young people. And that's a risk, you know. But the thing we do do is what God's called us to do, and that's preach the word. That's to emphasize holy living. That's to have a church where, where holiness is attractive. Where being a Christian is the right thing to do. The world out there wants you to not be Christian. The world out there wants you not to be holy. You ought to be safe in here. And that ought to be consistently encouraged in our churches. So what did, what do did we have in common here? We got in common here with Elizabeth and Zacharias and Mary had these four things in common. And these are things that you've got to embrace if you're going to grow in the word. They received God's word. They believed in God's word. They acted upon God's word. And then they proclaimed God's word. There's no excuse for us not to evangelize people. But that, 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 and it helps to have some skill in that area to have a little bit of training. We're hopefully maybe this winter to do some training in evangelism through the Gideons. But, uh, but what, you, what, what really evangelism comes down to is you're so excited about God and the forgiveness of sins and the coming of heaven. You just can't keep quiet about it. You just can't keep quiet about it. I love Mary's example here. She truly is a Proverbs 31 woman. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she smiles at the future, no matter how difficult that future is. And she says, generations will certainly call me blessed. Kent Hughes says, the Virgin Mary's young heart showcased the characteristics essential for all who would experience the birth of Christ in their lives. She was a living beatitude. And her soul was a blessed model for all her desire to cultivate the life of Christ in their hearts. So in this text, as we see the old covenant fulfilled, uh, someday we're also going to see the new covenant fulfilled. Isn't that interesting? The old covenant longed for the first advent. We long for the return of Christ. We long for the return of Christ. That day is going to come. And it's as sure. It's already written. It's as sure as the first Christmas 
came, the return of Christ. So what will we do then? One of the interesting things is Scripture is going to tell us, tells us we're going to sing. Revelation 14. And then I looked and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name in the name of the Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of a loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of a harpist playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one can learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. We one day, Christian We'll join with Elizabeth, we'll join with Mary, we'll join with Zechariah, we'll join with righteous Simeon in singing a new song. But at that point in time, the covenants are all finished. And there will never be a downtime, and we will sing forever and ever and ever. That's what Christmas is all about. Father, we do come before you and we pray, God, that you would teach us the words of that new song even now. And let our soul be so magnified with you, so overwhelmed by your grace that we just can't keep quiet, that we just keep singing this song. And through the singing of that song, would you quiet our anxiety and our depression and our discouragement and our distraction? You are God. We are your people. You have made it so. Let us enjoy it so. In Christ's name, amen.